Was C.S. Lewis reformed? The answer to the question posed is, of course, not exactly. At the same time, and in a different sense, the answer is yes, of course. And this means that while there is substantive agreement, there is a clear difference between how some modern reformed articulate the truth on certain issues and how Lewis did. And I want to suggest in saying this, that many reformed pastors in some key areas have something to learn about this from Lewis. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 33, Ecumenism Month. Reformed Lewis? After Hours with Pastor Douglas Wilson. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly working our way through The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. But today is a Thursday, and it's an after-hours episode, and I'm therefore speaking to Pastor Douglas Wilson. Pastor Wilson is pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and the founder of New St. Andrew's College. He has been married to his wife, Nancy, for over 40 years, and they have a number of children and, quote, teeming hordes of grandchildren who come over to our house pretty regularly in order to terryhoot. He writes at the blog, blog and my blog, where he says that he wants to advance Chestertonian Calvinism, and he also speaks on the podcast podcast. He has written a crazy number of books, well over 100, including What I Learned in Narnia and a recently released book of essays, The Light from Behind the Sun, a reformed and evangelical appreciation of C.S. Lewis. Pastor Wilson, welcome to Pints with Jack. Well, thank you. This is very enjoyable. Appreciate it. Not at all. So the origin of this interview is kind of interesting. Back in season four, I decided that I really wanted to do a series in this season called Ecumenical Lewis, where we spoke to people from a very diverse set of religious backgrounds uh, and who nevertheless find real value in Lewis. And I had already found guests for Eastern Orthodoxy, Mormonism, and even Orthodox Judaism. But then one of our listeners, a guy called Rich Dimble, he sent me an email saying that he'd love to see you come onto the show. I'd already come across you. I had watched some of the Sweater Vest Dialogues with Dr. James White. I had come across your lecture series on the Ransom Trilogy and your various appearances with John Piper talking about Lewis. And so I reached out, and in the process of doing so, I discovered that you had a book coming out almost on this exact subject, a reformed and evangelical appreciation of C.S. Lewis. Now, it's a cold Wisconsin day today, so I'm just enjoying a big cup of tea, and I'm still waiting for a tea company to sponsor this show. Uh, So, cheers. Cheers. The listenership of our podcast is quite diverse. It's across the whole denominational spectrum. And so for listeners who haven't come across you before, would you mind filling in a few details? Who are you? Sure. Um, my name is Douglas Wilson. I'm the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. Uh, if you're familiar with the Pacific Northwest, we're up in the panhandle of Idaho, up in the beautiful part, right? And uh, uh, so I've been here for since 1975. Uh, I got out of the Navy, came to school here, and became a pastor shortly uh, thereafter, and I uh, have been ministering here for 40 years. And I, uh, I write uh, on my blog, blog and my blog, and I've written a number of books. And I have uh, been a C.S. Lewis uh, disciple my entire life. So <laughs> where did you first encounter him? What was the book that really grabbed you? 
my folks had a good set of friends named Gladys, uh, Gladys Hunt and, and uh, Rusty Hunt. Uh, they introduced my dad to the Narnia books. Uh, so my dad started reading the Narnia books to me when I was five. So that would have been 1958. So the books were still either coming out or they were, they were still new, right? Mm-hmm. They were, uh, and so I'd been, um, I'd had um, the Narnia books read to me since I was a little kid and repeatedly. And then when I was in high school, I started reading Lewis's apologetic works, his, his theological works, and I've been reading them ever since. Now, people say it's like choosing a favorite child, uh, and yeah. I think that's true. I think we all have a true answer. We just don't like to say it. Uh, but which is your favorite Lewis book, if you had to pick one? Uh, not even close. I would say that hideous strength. Yeah, that really comes across in your book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I love that hideous strength. I've I've probably read it fourteen or fifteen times. I you know it's just and it's the kind of book I know that I'm going to be rereading uh, to the end of my life and uh, following Lewis's criteria in experiment and criticism. Um, that's how I that's how I would value the book. It's a book you keep returning to. And you keep getting something out of it. Hmm. Uh, we did a season on the four loves, and uh, my co-host Andrew he he likes to say that you get whiplash when you read it the first time. You read it and it's like, what what was that? And that was also my experience with that hideous strength. It was just, what did I just read? <laughs> <laughs> So this series, I'm basically asking people from different religious backgrounds what it is that they love about Lewis, where they found him helpful in their journey with the Lord, and parts of his corpus that they either struggle with or just outright disagree. Uh, And about a month before recording this interview, you released an entire book, which is effectively answering this question. Uh, It's called The Light from Behind the Sun, A Reformed and Evangelical Appreciation of C.S. Lewis. Now, Anyone who has followed you for any length of time will know that you are a self-professed Lewis junkie. Right. But what was it that prompted you to write a book? The book came out of uh, the fact that I, I, I love to write. I, and I, I write, I tell people I write for the same reason that dogs bark. Like, <laughs> <laughs> why do you need a reason? So, uh, but when you write compulsively, as I do, you, you need something to write about. and and as the adage goes, write what you know. And one of the things I know is Lewis. He addresses a number of uh, different things. His his interests his interests in writing are, are all across the waterfront, uh, as are mine. And I find that if I want to write about politics, there's something Lewis said about politics. If I want to write about uh, literature, there's something Lewis said about literature. If the, if I want to write about uh, metaphysics, realism, and nominalism. Lewis is there. Um, so basically, he is he has supplied my tool chest with all kinds of um, observations and insights that I found very valuable. And of course, when I want to write about something, sometimes I'll just cite Lewis in passing. You know, Lewis makes mm-hmm. this point. I do that a lot, a lot. But other t- other times, I uh, I want to dive deeper and you know address something that I think needs to be discussed more exhaustively. So if I write an extended piece on my blog about what happened to Susan Pevensey, so I do that. And that, that is a chapter in this book. 
So I, I wrote a number of different things over the years on Lewis's apologetic method, on Lewis's um, um, uh, interaction with Reformed theology. I'm, I'm Reformed and he's I'm systematically Reformed. He was not systematically anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but he had a lot of um, valuable things to say in that area. So those things inter- interested me. So when I drill down and write about them, at, after a certain point, I thought, you know, I've got a number of essays or articles or posts on things Lewis. Why don't I bundle them together and make a book out of it? I think the first thing about Lewis related to you that I've read was your post where you say, I don't think C.S. Lewis would have liked me very much. And <laughs> then you go and trash a little bit of uh, reflections on the Psalms. But yes. uh, I'm sure I'm sure we'll come to that. But one thing I meant to ask you, which came first, Lewis or Chesterton? Because it's clear that you're influenced by both. Yes, Lewis, Lewis by a, a mile. So uh, Lewis is probably my introduction to Chesterton. So yeah. I, I grew up on Lewis having Lewis read to me and reading him myself. So from the time I was five, all the way, all the way through my childhood, it was Lewis, Lewis, Lewis. Uh, I didn't start reading Chesterton until I got out of the Navy. Uh, I was, so I was 22 and I came to the university of Idaho to major in philosophy. And I like telling people that when, if you're an engineer, if you're majoring um, in engineering, mechanical engineering, I say your great advantage is almost everything you're learning is true. Uh, in philosophy, almost everything I was learning was false. <laughs> everything was, this is just some of all of it was false and some of it was dumb. And uh, when I when I got uh, into my freshman year uh, at the U of I as a twenty as an older freshman, I I got connected to Chesterton's orthodoxy. And I read Orthodoxy uh, when I was first study, be opening my study of philosophy. And it was like uh, mountain air to someone who'd been living in a suffocating, you know, <laughs> stuffy basement. Um, Chesterton was my lifeline of sanity uh, studying philosophy. Uh, okay, oh, here's a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Chesterton was anything but normal, but I know what you mean. Yeah. He was an extraordinary, ordinary man. Yes. Well, as Lewis says, you have met no ordinary people. Uh, no. My my wife and her friend Grace, they're actually going through orthodoxy on their podcast at the moment. So I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, reading along at the dinner table with them. Yes. Uh, but let's talk about your book. Uh, you've got 13 essays here. Would you mind just giving our listeners an overview of some of the topics that you touch on? And we'll, we'll, we'll go into them deeper in a little bit. Okay. Um, it ranges from... Uh, like, uh, did was um, Lewis was Susan Pevensey an apostate? Uh, you know, wh- why is she not in the last battle? Uh, she's not a friend of Narnia. What happened to what happened to Susan Pevensey? Uh, why is Susan not there? Uh, another question, another essay is why is Emmeth there? Emmeth <laughs> uh, the Tellerman, what's he doing there? And why is Susan not there? So two different essays on that. I have a. Um, a discussion of what was was C.S. Lewis reformed. Um, a lot of I, I come from a Calvinistic and reformed tradition. A lot of people would be suspicious of Lewis because they would say, "Well, he was he was an Anglican and not reformed, and I don't have to learn anything from him." Um, and so I uh, try to address that question by saying, "Yes, you do have something to learn 
from him, uh, even in the areas where you take pride in your doctrinal soundness, you have something to learn from him. So I, I um, do that. I'd have an essay on whether Lewis was uh, a presuppositionalist or an evidentialist. And the answer is he was both. Uh, he, he did both and he did both very well. Uh, the name of the book um, comes from a, a line that Lewis uses in letters to Malcolm. And he refers to the light from behind the sun. Uh, and there's an extended essay there on the thing that brought Lewis to the faith. It, it's an argument. Uh, it's an argument that Lewis adopted before he became a Christian. It led him to Christ, and he uses over and over and over again up to the end of his life. And it it is basically the argument that you you need to have certain foundational assumptions in order to be able to think at all. We're finite creatures. We have to reason axiomatically. We have to have a starting point. Hmm. Uh, And for Lewis, that starting point was um, uh, the assumption that reason is absolute and that morality is absolute. And you, you don't go to a neutral zone and try to reason your way to those things. And so I try to show how this argument is made again and again and again. Uh, throughout all his books. That then takes me to really the main question I'm asking each of my guests in this season. What is it about Lewis which makes all denominations want to claim him? (laughs) Yeah, why is this a fight over the body of Moses? Uh, (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I I read you uh, use that example quite a few times. It made me chuckle each time. Um, So... uh, I, somebody on one of his books, and I forget which one, but I read this blurb that someone said about his book, and it, I think it captures everything. Um, and that is, Lewis made righteousness readable. Yeah, I love that line. I, I, I read it, reread it just a moment ago. It, that is, I would say, his big strength. It, it, when, I, right. when he writes about holiness, it's actually attractive. It's not insipid. Yes. It, um, and I think that um, as a as a writer myself, I think he, I think I could probably, I'll, I'll put it this way: Lewis can write a book about a subject that doesn't interest me at all, <laughs> <laughs> and I want to read. I still I want to read it. I, I want to read Lewis uh, because I love how he puts things together, and uh, he ma- he makes righteousness readable, uh, and and he makes things readable that are. Holiness is, uh, it's very easy for uh, people who have an interest in holiness to become pinched and crabbed and unattractive. Mm -hmm. And um, again, in my uh, uh, tradition, there's the, we're fighting off the morbidly introspective Calvinist who's constantly questioning his own salvation, right? There's morbid introspection. But Lewis was a sunny introspectionist. Hmm. Um, if you, you can't find among the Puritans, you can't find anybody who slices motives and intentions as thinly as Lewis can do, but you don't have a hint of, as Lewis says somewhere, as though a long face were some sort of moral dis, disinfectant. <laughs> um, he was jovial. He was genuinely jovial. He had a sunny disposition, but he was serious and winsome. And there's something about it, uh, there's something about his um, charisma that can extend across half a century. (laughs) It can be over 60 years of of him being with the Lord. 
and he, his um, personality, the timbre of his voice still comes through. Um, I don't think that there's ever been a, a writer in the history of Western civilization quite like him um, because you, you look at the areas. He was a children's author. He was an adult fiction author. He was a poet, and I think quite a good one. Ah, we have a, a poetry fan of Lewis. You don't yes. meet many of them. <laughs> no, I, he, uh, Lewis, is, his central ambition early on was to be a poet, and he was never successfully a vocational poet, but I think he was a, uh, a good poet. He was at the top of his game in his profession as an academician, as an Oxford don, his, his professional work is outstanding, and he was an apologist, and he's been dead 60 years, and he's the best-selling author in all of those categories. Hmm. You know, it's like, if you look up the ranking of the Amazon ranking of The Great Divorce, or the Amazon ranking of Mere Christianity, or the Amazon ranking of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he is a rock star across multiple genres of writing. I just don't know anybody that even comes close to that kind of thing. Mm. And he was astoundingly winsome in all, in all of those areas. Yeah. It's just remarkable. And I, I can be in violent disagreement with him um, <laughs> over something that he's writing, and I'm still edified. <laughs> I, I think that, that that is true. And that's actually very Lewisian in itself, because Lewis read authors with whom he very much disagreed, but he still managed to get something out of them, even yeah. if it was just the way that they wrote and communicated. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you say in your book that some people question whether you are truly a Calvinist. And your response is actually one of my favorite passages from the book. You say, I wish there were seven points so I could hold to the Calvinistic extras. You may count me a devotee of cruel over broken glass Calvinism, jet fuel Calvinism, black coffee Calvinism, uh, weapons grade Calvinism, no yellow cake uranium semi-Pelagianism for me. I buy my Calvinism in 50 gallon drums with a skull and crossbones stenciled on the side with little dribbles of white paint running down the corners. I get my Calvinism delivered on those forklift plats at Costco. I trust this reassures everyone, and I am glad we had this little chat. So with that established, let's jump to the million-dollar question. Was right. Lewis reformed? And yeah. it might also be worth uh, giving a little bit, little bit of background as to what does it actually mean to be reformed? Because that might be a term that's unfamiliar to some people. Sure. Um, the, the main question I'm addressing uh, in this essay is whether he was in his soteriology, whether he was... Um, gave all the glory to God and none to the creature the way a Calvinist would want him to. And it's, it's quite plain, if you read all his books, it's quite plain that he, he uh, argues uh, from a free will premise in a number of passages. He's eclectic and not systematic, right? So mm -hmm. he'll, he'll say things that someone, uh, a diehard Dutch Calvinist could point to that and say, see, he's an Arminian uh, yeah. because of, uh, because of his uh, treatment of free will in that passage. But I would say that he was more unsystematic than that. And it wasn't, he wasn't saying those things out of ignorance. In other words, he, if you uh, read English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama, which is his magnum opus in his professional career, the first few chapters are a history of the Reformation. And uh, it's just brilliant. It's just brilliantly done. He knew the history. 
He knew the theologians. He knew the issues. He was a conservative, as he described it, a conservative, middle-of-the-road Anglican churchman. He said, neither particularly high nor particularly low. (laughs) So he would not identify as a firebrand evangelical low church Anglican. He would not identify himself as an Anglo-Catholic at the high at the high end. He just said, "I'm just, uh, I just want my priest to stick to the prayer book and and, <laughs> and keep their sermons and, short. <laughs> and keep, keep their sermons short. That's how uh, you know he wasn't a Calvinist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how you know he wasn't a Puritan. Oh, um, okay, fair enough. So, so um, the thing that that's striking though is that he was a he knew the era that the Church of England was born in, mm-hmm. and the 39 Articles, which is the statement of faith for the Church of England, is thoroughly Calvinistic. His favorite theologian, Richard Hooker, um, would have been Calvinistic in his soteriology. In Hooker's day, to be a Calvinist meant you were Calvinistic on the sacraments. So Hooker wouldn't have said, I'm a Calvinist. But back in uh, the early in, in the Elizabethan era, with the great churchmen uh, of of that era, there was no dispute over the um, uh, the, the soteriology of Calvinism. And that did surprise me when I read that in your book. I hadn't realized that there had been something of a, of a shift there. Um, but again, for our listeners who haven't had much contact with Calvinism, how would how would you, in broad strokes, obviously a big topic, but in broad strokes, how would you explain the sacraments that that, may, that would what would be a Calvinistic view of the sacraments? Okay, and this is this is another funny thing because Calvin Calvin's view of the sacraments was higher than um, Cranmer's, for example. Mm. So um, uh, the Zwinglian the, the Zwinglian approach to sacraments out of Zurich. The Zwingli was followed by Bullinger. Bullinger had a huge impact on the English reformers. It was closer to a m- memorialist position. Calvin had a higher uh, view of the sacrament in that he believed that the bread stayed bread and the wine stayed wine. But when we partook of the sacraments in faith, we were actually partaking of Christ spiritually in the heavenly places by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Mm -hmm. um, the Calvinist sacrament, sacramental approach would affirm the real presence. Yeah. Okay, uh, they would deny the local presence that the, the bread doesn't turn into. Um, so a Lutheran would affirm the local presence. Catholics obviously affirm the local presence. Uh, but Calvinists would be very comfortable with the real presence. Hmm. So um, there'd be a, diff- a sacramental difference. And so you could have someone like George Herbert, who was a great devotional poet. He was on the five points of Calvinism soteriologically. He was a Calvinist, but he was a churchman, and sacramentally, he was where the Church of England was. So it's, it was that kind of uh, divide. Lewis, when, when it comes down to the pinch point on God's sovereignty over salvation, uh, in one of his letters, uh, he's writing, a, I've forgotten her name, he's writing to a woman, and he said, in whatever, in whatever sense... We, we admit that the Pauline doctrine is true, <laughs> right? He said, we must always remember that free will is also true, but it's very interesting. He calls the Protestant, the classic Protestant doctrine of salvation, soteriology. He calls it the Pauline doctrine. <laughs> In whatever sense the Pauline doctrine is true, we still have to affirm 
free will, freedom that we're not puppets. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, uh, Calvinists would agree with that. There's a chapter on free will in, in the West, Westminster Confession. And then one of the things I point out in this book is that if you, you could take every one of the five points of Calvinism and illustrate it out of uh, Narnia. Yes, the, the Narnian tulips. I, I rather liked that. <laughs> Narnian tulips, which are, um, so how was Eustace converted? Well, he, Eustace wasn't going forward at a revival meeting. You know, Eustace was trying to save himself and trying to save himself, and he couldn't do it, and Aslan had to do it. Or uh, Jill, when she comes to the stream, uh, uh, basically, and she says, well, we called on Aslan. And he said, well, you would not have called me had, had I not uh, been calling you. It's things like that all the way through the Narnia books. So Lewis, I would say, would be uh, uncomfortable with a detailed systematic expression of Calvinism, right, where you dot the I's and cross the T's. But in all the main outlines, I'm very comfortable with uh, uh, what he would say, what he would teach. Now, as I was reading that section, uh, the thing that I kept thinking of, because I I read the passages that that you brought up, and I thought to myself, but many other theological systems could still affirm what Lewis is saying. It's not like predestination is the exclusive uh, exclusive property of Calvinism. Other other Christian and theological thought affirm predestinationism, but not to maybe the same degree uh, as Calvin would. Right, and they and they would explain it differently or answer the answer the questions that are posed differently. Hmm. But I, I would come back to the fact that Lewis um, was an Anglican churchman who was under the 39 articles and the 39 articles expresses what I believe about those hmm. doctrines. So I'm happy to say uh, he was uh, Anglicans, particularly 20th century Anglicans uh, would, would want to tend to identify themselves as, Neither Reformed nor Lutheran, but another, uh, their own. Thea Media, yeah. Yeah, their, their own thing. And I think Lewis would probably probably be comfortable with that. But he was also historically informed. And he would know that Cranmer and all the, all the early founders of the Church of England were Calvinists in the same way that I am. And I wondered if if the fact that he was an Anglican churchman answers a, answers a little bit the earlier question as to why does everybody want to claim him? And it's partially because the Anglican Church, through its development, particularly in both the early Reformation, so sort of pre Henry VIII, where it looked like Catholicism, but you just now had a different a different head at the top of the church, through the later uh, Reformation reforms of of the idea of holy orders and everything else, and even through to today, that's um, the Anglican Church itself has morphed and embraced other parts or other other theologies and not been quite so purely Calvinistic as some of the reformers wanted to make the church, right. that that can perhaps go a, a, a reasonable way to explaining why so many people love him, because they recognize some of some of the aspects of their own denomination's theology that got drawn into that along the way. Yeah, I think I think that's um, I think that's fair. I think that for North American evangelicals, there is um, it's not like the Episcopal Church down the street. It's this thing over there, and consequently safe. And he writes wonderfully, and <laughs> and he has a British accent. Everything British, is better with a British accent. <laughs> everything is, yeah. If you want to get make it as a preacher, 
just go to America with a British accent. Then you get 10, 10 spirituality points. <laughs> <laughs> just don't let them know that you also smoke a pipe and drink. Uh, well, I don't want to end on a downer. So let's first of all talk about some of the aspects of Lewis's theology that you struggle with or reject or tweak, or I would say in a few of them, nuance as you go through, as you go through these essays. Yeah. So probably the biggest area where I would uh, collide with Lewis would be in his uh, uh, reflections on the Psalms, hmm. you know. Um, so he'll, you know, particularly imprecatory Psalms. So those are the Psalms where the psalmist is calling down vengeance and justice and, and judgment on his enemies. Right. Uh, so Lewis will, will say, God put this in the Bible so that we would learn not to do that kind of thing. Hmm. Um don't try this at home. I think this was uh, I think this was a function of his humility because he in in collisions with other people, I think he was one of the most humble writers that I've ever encountered where you um he was always disciplined in wanting to think about it from the other person's perspective and to check his own motives. Uh and then when he's when he's reading in the Psalms and he sees the attitude in the psalmist that he's at war with in himself. You know, when, when I want to strike at an enemy, it's really bad in me. And so it was bad in him. And so God put that in the Psalms as a bad example for me to, let, let's not do that. Kind of like the, the sons of thunder wanting to call down fire from heaven when people. Yeah. And Jesus saying, you know, not, you know, not what spirit you are of. Uh, I think that Lewis is dealing with that. that. That's, I see what he's doing. And I think I see why. Uh, the, my problem with it is theological because we're instructed to sing the Psalms to the end of the world. This is our songbook, right? Um, and you can have uh, one of the fiercest imprecatory Psalms is quoted in the New Testament. Um, you, you, when, uh, when they're replacing Judas, his, his office led another take. Uh, and, it, and it's one of the... Uh, examples that Lewis used. That psalm is one of the examples that Lewis uses as one of the worst, right? This yeah. is this is a really bad attitude. And then Peter quotes it, quotes that psalm as like, this is the word of God. And I just, I just can't get that sort of thing to, to add up. At the same time, uh, so I would have the most violent reaction to reflections on the psalms. If you, if someone said, what book of Lewis's do you disagree with the most? It would be it would be that one, but I also have read that book repeatedly, and have found <laughs> have found it very edifying. I've learned a lot about the Psalms, and I've learned a lot about Christian living from Lewis in that book. Uh, so that's one of the that's one of the weird things. I think he, uh, another area. Just before we move off, how how would you then couch the imprecatory Psalms? Do you say go with the church fathers and view them much more allegorically that here we're talking about the destroying of sin and our sinful nature and our sinful passions? Or would you have another take as to why we can't simply say, don't do this at home, kids? Yeah, I think it should be corporate. I think the church should be singing imprecatory psalms. In our church service, we've got a, we have a psalter that has all the psalms in it. We, we sing them. We are trying to learn them all. We sing imprecatory psalms routinely and regularly and uh the way we've instructed our people is when we're singing about god destroying our enemies the course we've urged people to take is lord 
the first and best way to destroy an enemy is to transform him into a friend. The, <laughs> that destroys an enemy uh, as God destroyed an enemy on the Damascus road. Mm-hmm. So, so we have, we have actual flesh and blood enemies, not just principalities and powers. There are people, there are people who are overseeing the slaughter of the unborn. There are people doing all kinds of awful things in real time in our world. And we believe that we should pray imprecatory psalms with regard to them. But our first desire is that God would destroy his enemies here by transforming them into friends. But then, secondly, the fallback is, failing that, we pray that you would take them out anyway. <laughs> you know, we deal with these. The, Deliver the us thing from of, evil. Yeah, and as, as long as you don't ha- treat the imprecatory psalms like a voodoo doll, where you're you're trying to settle scores with your personal enemies by means of this Bible verse. That's where you don't know what spirit you're of. You know, and I think of David himself, who, when it came to his personal enemy, Saul, no one was more magnanimous toward his personal enemy than David was. Hmm. Right? And yet he can be pretty fierce um, in some of the imprecatory Psalms. And then one of the funny, uh, this is something I learned from Lewis. There's a, an early Scots Psalter that Lewis quotes. And it's, it's 130, it's the one that ends with uh, dash your little ones against the rock. Yeah. Um, an early Scots Psalter, Lewis quotes, Oh, blessed shall the trooper be comes riding on his naggy who takes your wee bairns by the taze and dings them on the craggy. <laughs> <laughs> Which Lewis thought never hilarious. has something so horrific sounded so pretty. Yeah, or and Lewis thought it was hilarious, and so do I. Uh, but you, you you shouldn't trivialize it. You shouldn't. Um, basically, I I think it needs to be worked through more carefully than I think Lewis did. But again, he was edifying on that on that topic. Hmm. Okay, what else then? Uh, another thing is Lewis was a, I I have some interaction with him. I think it was in the thing where I. The essay, I don't think Lewis would have liked me very much. Maybe maybe it's a different one. But I think Lewis was kind of a, a curmudgeon when it came to technology. Um, um, he, has a, he has a section where he complains about zippers, you know, as, of, <laughs> as opposed to buttons. You know, uh, buttons are low tech and they don't break. And when they break, you can fix them. But he, he had a jaundiced eye toward manufacturers who come up with these contraptions that you have to buy another one as soon as it breaks. And the planned obsolescence thing was a, was a thing for him. Prophetically foreseeing Apple computers. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. But then, for example, he has a line where he talks about the space race between Russia and America. And he says, you know, these great superpowers could be occupied with worse things than making very expensive objects and throwing them overboard. Uh, <laughs> and so he he just uh, thought of that kind of thing as beyond useless. But because of all those satellites up there now, I've got a little device here where I can access any library in the world, mm-hmm. right? I can look up Latin words. I can look up Anglo-Saxon words. I've got the equivalent of a hundred thousand servants here. And it's because it's, you might still have a, a worry about what, what technology is doing to us, 
but the last thing in the world it is is useless. And I think mm-hmm. Lewis had a tendency to think that oh, it's just just wasting money. Yeah, apparently Tolkien's attitude was actually much more progressive in that regard. You know, he liked motor cars and he liked a lot of a lot of the of the innovation, but he drew a very a, a very strong line in the sand when it came to the destruction of natural life. Yes, be it, even if it was. I'm going to say just right. trees, and every Tolkien fan is wanting to throw things at me right now. <laughs> right, <laughs> and but there was a time when Tolkien uh, was going to read something into a tape recorder, and he recited the Lord's Prayer in Gaelic first to cast the demon out. <laughs> <laughs> a little disappointed it wasn't Elvish, but okay. <laughs> uh, you spend uh, some time in your book talking about the the questions of soteriology, so what happened with Susan and uh, why, why is Emmeth there? Uh, and it was, it was this sort of thing. I think the reason that someone contacted me in the first place about having you on was I made a comment about Presbyterians and Calvinists. I've been noticing that lots of them seem to be fans of Lewis. And there are some things in his works that don't seem to jibe particularly neatly with that. Um, I was particularly surprised in the direction that you took the chapter on Emmeth, uh, that perhaps opening up a little bit more of a, of a view that there is a space for this, perhaps yeah. even in the Westminster Confession. Yes. So um, Lewis was far more um, broad on, in, in one of his on, on this question than I would than I would be. Um, for a lot of evangelicals, Emmeth is too much. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and what are you letting Emmeth in for? Um, and it's a talking point for parents who are reading the book to their kids. Or what's he doing there? Um, and if you look at Lewis's letters, he he would think um, people coming to Christ. He he believes that no one is saved apart from Christ, mm-hmm. but he also believes that there are people saved through Christ who do not have a um, an express knowledge of Christ, right? like like Emma. So he would think that there's a lot more of a lot more people in that category than I would think, but I do think that there's room for Emmeth and situations like that. And I think of that uh, in terms of the Westminster Confession. Uh, the Westminster Confession says that outside the church, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that's a, a judicious way of putting it. You don't want to say, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, you can be a Buddhist or a Muslim, come one, come all, because then why evangelism? Why Jesus? <laughs> why Jesus? Um, but if you say uh, the God's ordinary, God is God, you don't, especially as a Calvinist, I don't want to be laying down rules for what God can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side of the world, before the missionaries got to uh, a particular tribe. I don't believe it's common because of sin, because of depravity. I don't think it's very common, but I believe that God is God. And I'm content with the Westminster Confession saying that's not what ordinarily happens. But let's not tell God what he can't do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and that sort of language, I hadn't realized it had made it over into the Reformed camp as much, but um in other traditions, you you hear an awful lot about the ordinary means of salvation, and the emphasis is there on ordinary in terms of this is how we believe God set it up, and so therefore this is what we do. But it's as you say, we're we're not going to say that God can't possibly move in any other way. Right. And the the passage that always springs to mind on that is in the early part of Romans, where Paul talks about the Gentiles, 
and he talks about their ignorance and he says and on that on that day their consciences uh, may either excuse or condemn them Correct. so there is at least yes. an idea that there is that there is a certain level of judgment on the light that you have actually received and did you do the, your best to follow it right. without saying come one come all it doesn't matter right and the other thing to keep in mind in narnia there is no old covenant new covenant mm-hmm. you know um and so even though the death of aslan occurs in the middle of narnian history you don't it's not like you have the jews beforehand and the christians after it's mm-hmm. it, you've got narnians before and narnians after it's it, there's no old covenant new covenant thing to navigate and in the old covenant uh even in a strict Calvinistic uh, uh, approach, a strict Calvinistic approach. In the Old Covenant, um, uh, the inhabitants of Nineveh were saved, never became mm-hmm. Jews. Um, Melchizedek never became a Jew, and the first Jew paid the tithe to him. Uh, Naaman the Syrian was saved and never ceased being a, a, a Syrian. You had Jethro, a priest of Midian, a priest of Midian, who gave Moses good input. Uh, you know, you have, basically you have numerous people in the old covenant who are not Jews, who were permitted to come worship the true God. In fact, when the temple is built, the outer court is the court of the Gentiles. So, um, in, in fact, that's what I, one of the reasons I believe Jesus was so angry when he cleansed the temple. Um, it was about a 30 acre courtyard and the temples on one side of it in the middle and the court of the gentiles was filled up with all the sacrificial animals which represented the jews right and jesus when he cleanses the temple he says he's flipping tables and he's doing all this and he says my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a, a den of robbers and the nations there is ethnoi um, gentiles my house should be called a house of prayer for all the Gentiles, but you've made it. Uh, so uh, I, I believe that you can have, I don't want to treat Narnia as though I've got to plug it into a systematic theology mm-hmm. and make it fit. But I think in the broad outlines, I'm more than comfortable. So Jesus prayed that his church might be one in order that the world might believe. So another question I'm asking all my guests is, how do we think Lewis can best be used to foster unity in the body of Christ as well as to mm-hmm. share his saving gospel? Well, I think that um, one of the things he, he, he can do and has already done is he is, he has presented a winsome voice that is outside most of the traditions that appreciate it. And um, so uh, I, I, I should mention this. One of the reasons I think conservative evangelicals in North America appreciate him so much is his hostility to relativism. Mm-hmm. You know, um, his essay on the poison of subjectivism is magnificent. He anticipates many of the problems that we're confronting uh, today. And here's someone who believes uh, in objective truth, goodness, and beauty. And he's not going to budge on any of that stuff. And that means that I can differ with them here and there, but it's not on the, not on the essentials. Um, mm. And I think that the, there's two things on when it comes to Christian unity. Um, in Ephesians 4, the chapter begins with a unity that we're already given. 
every true Christian already has it. Um, because we're told to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Hmm. And the way we disrupt it is by sinning, right? If we get, if we get angry or lustful or covetous or competitive, or, you know, if we sin, we disrupt the unity of the spirit that we already have. So if I'm visiting a strange city, I can get together for lunch with a Baptist and a Methodist and I, I can, and we can all have good fellowship together. And it's just a gift of the spirit. And I should labor to preserve that. And I think Lewis is really good on that front. You know, the screw tape letters teaches us how not to sin against each other. His his, uh, astounding insights on how to interact with other people, checking your own heart. You know, he's just good on teaching us how to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But then later... In Ephesians four, uh, the uh, the Lord Jesus gives gifts to men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, uh, so that we might be instructed and grow up into the perfect man, into the unity of the faith. So there's a unity that we have that we're supposed to preserve, and there's a unity that we do not yet have that we're not supposed to have yet. It, it's uh, we don't want to have an overrealized eschatology. The bride of Christ at the end of history is going to be without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, but we can't rush the wedding prep. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and your description there this season, we've been looking at the four loves and what you just described there is the two kinds of nearness. There's the nearness by likeness, which is something intrinsic given to us built in. And then there's a nearness by approach, which involves both uh, the turning of our wills and a journey towards uh, the village in the mountain where we will finally get our baths and our teas. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, food and drink, uh, one listener messaged me and asked me to ask you this question. If you could share a beer with Lewis, what would you talk about and what would you ask him? I'd probably ask him ab- uh, about uh, some of his unfinished work. Mm. There's a collection of essays that he, he has a thing about Helen and Odysseus and Helen and Menelaus that I thought was a quite promising start um, on, a, on a novel. Um, I'd probably ask him about that. I'd, um, I'd ask him about Till We Have Faces. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you and everybody else. It's like, I have else. questions. <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll be honest with you that when I, when I first read that, back, you know, decades ago, when I, probably in my twenties, my first read, I didn't like it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, it just was not, that was, and I think the only book by Lewis that I ever didn't like, you know, it was, and I didn't come back to it, but I knew, I, I knew that Lewis thought it was one of his best, if not his best. And many years later, I thought, okay, I'm going to give it another go, read it again. And this time I thought it was magnificent. I thought it was just, really good what uh, changed i think i grew up <laughs> i think i think that's what it was i um it was one of those things where one of the the uh building one of the foundational premises is you've the pre- protagonist is this unloved ugly woman and it's just uh you, you ache for you know all oh, this is <laughs> that's not my that's not my happy spot mm-hmm. um 
But I think that I saw later on, I was able to see what Lewis was doing. And it was pretty, um, I, I think it was pretty amazing. And where the, the ugliness was not uh, just this unfortunate mishap that was sort of laid on her by, by an uncaring fate. It was, it was all part of her mimetic envy. Uh, her, her, you know, the, it was a sin thing. It was not, it was not what I had taken it to be, I think at the first. So I've, I've read it a few times since then. And I think it's a, I think that it is a brilliant book, but there's some stuff near the end that I would like to, <laughs> I would like Lewis to tease out a bit more. You know, uh-huh. I would agree going, with that. What's going on there? Particularly part two. I, my girlfriend, we weren't married at that point. My girlfriend and I, we read through the book with the podcast season. So I was only getting a chapter at a time. Uh, and then we came to part two. And let's just say that there was a roller coaster of emotions, of, of happiness and confusion. And yeah, it's uh, my co-host, Andrew, likes to repeatedly say that Lewis said that it was far and away my best book. Uh, and I think if nothing else, then that, that, that demands that we keep going back until we can start seeing That's what right. he was doing and appreciating it like him. Hang on to that by faith. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've already partially answered the, the next question. So aside from his unfinished works, while you were having that beer with Lewis, if he had asked you what book you should write next, what would you have suggested? Oh, you know, I would like him, I would ask him, I think, to write a uh, sort of a systematic collation of his apologetic. Oh. Not a systematic theology, mm-hmm. but take all of his apologetic uh, works, his apologetic essays, and write a systematic treatise, not for the layman, but for the apologist. Hmm. I think that that's what I would ask him to do. I don't think he'd have done it. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess it would depend at what point in his life that you were, that you were talking to him. I think later in his life, he had less interest about being quite so overt. Yeah. I think that you're probably uh, almost certainly right that he wouldn't do it, but, (laughs) but that, that is something that I would like to see because one of the things that, uh, that we have to deal with is that Lewis did grow and shift and mature over time. Mm-hmm. And there are things that the only edit that I know of that he made was uh, early on in Miracles in, yeah. in response to the Anscombe uh, criticism. But there are some things that, okay, did Lewis still think this at the end of his life? It's, it's things like that. So I think that he became more uh, conservative in his... Uh, theological convictions and in his Protestantism. Uh, that's Tolkien attributed uh, near the end of their life. He and Tolkien never had a falling out or anything like that, were they? Mm-hmm. But Tolkien said that Lewis was returning to his Ulster roots. Um, his ulterior motive. Right. <laughs> that's quite good. <laughs> um, <laughs> he could occasionally do it. So, um, so the, it was that sort of thing. So I'd, I'd like to know, okay, uh, if you were to do what Augustine did and mm. publish retractions or, or a list of things, I wouldn't put it that way now. He, he also does something similar in Pilgrim's Re- Regress. 
he has an afterword where he talks about the things he wouldn't quite do in the same way. So there in Miracles, there are some adjustments. But I, I would like to have him review more than that. Hmm. I think that would be that definitely would be interesting. We had Dr. Stephen Thorson on the show to talk about the Great War with Barfield and Lewis's conception, particularly of the imagination. And he he said that a lot of people get very confused about Lewis's thoughts about the imagination because they read what he read at different points in his life. Right. While he is not even a theist, while he's maybe a form of pantheist before, uh, and then a theist, and then ultimately a Christian, and they sort of smush all of this together and assume it's one and the same. Right. Well, Pastor Wilson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, where can people go to pick up a copy of your book, The Light from Behind the Sun, A Reformed and Evangelical Appreciation of C.S. Lewis? It is published by Canon Press, canonpress.com, all lowercase, uh, canonpress.com or canonpress.org. And if they uh, forget that, they can get to pretty much everything I'm doing through my blog, which is dougwills.com. And I'll have links to all of those in the show notes. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Pastor Wilson for coming on the show. Thanks to all of our listeners, Patreon supporters, and particularly our top tier supporters, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, Pierre, Kate, Peter, and Rowdy. Please follow us on social media. That's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even MySpace. We're bringing it back. And uh, I'd ask uh, you to share an episode, uh, particularly as we're going through this series talking to people from diverse religious backgrounds who still find value in Lewis's writings. Also, please check out our website, mindsofjack.com, where you can find endless resources for learning about Lewis, including many of Pastor Wilson's lectures, particularly those on the Ransom Trilogy. And please join us again next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>